Psalm 92. We're going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to begin our morning. Psalm 92 starts this way. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all the evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox, and you have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in their old age, and they are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray to that God this morning. Oh Lord, you are holy, perfect, just, steadfast in all your ways, righteous, without error, without falsehood, without need. Lord, you are completely unchangeable in your perfection and your grace. And Lord, that unchanging mercy, that unchanging power, Lord, we see it day by day as we look at your creation and we wonder, Lord, what have you made? Lord, remind us not only of your beauty, but of your holiness. Lord, teach us to fear your name this morning as we look at the prayers of Paul, your apostle. Lord, teach us to heed the psalmist's words that the wicked will go to destruction, but the righteous, they will flourish. Lord, make us righteous. Keep us on your straight and narrow paths. Teach us to exalt in your ways and exalt you alone. Lord, for you are good, gracious, steadfast. Lord, we are not, and we need you. Lord, teach us to pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 92 is, uh, let me just ask you this, what kind of psalm is Psalm 92? We just read it, read it together. A psalm of praise, yes. A psalm of praising, what particular kind of praise are we Love looking at? And yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so we have, we're praising God for who God is, not who we think he is, right? Uh, we're praising God for who he's revealed himself to be, not who we think he ought to be, right? And so 
What is the psalmist doing? Is it anything new what the psalmist is saying? Where have you heard it before? Just name another psalm. Psalm Psalm 5 actually does contain some of this, but you are totally shooting up in the air blindly. Anybody else? The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Let me go back up. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. And though the wicked sprout like grass, Psalm 2. Psalm 1, Psalm 2. The psalmist knows the word of the Lord so well that he appropriates it for his prayers and his psalms, right? So um, why do I say we should probably read the psalms every day? I think because not only does it teach us about God, but it teaches us how to pray his words back to him. It teaches us that he's given us a way to speak about him. And in this way, it's really like high and lofty. It's not high and lofty language. It's high and lofty God language, right? It's it's about God, how, how great his works are, about how great he is, about how steadfast he is in his love, about how because he is steadfast, we, the righteous, will bear fruit and the wicked will be destroyed. Right, you see the you see the pattern? He relies on who God is and talks about himself in light of God, and then asks God to make his promises known. He's totally just there. I mean, no. We've been talking about prayer for the past couple weeks, and so I need someone. I need three someones. One to turn to 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 12. One to turn to Colossians 1, 9 to 14. So one person, 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 12. Anybody? Any takers? I would love a youth. You're not quite a youth. You're outside of that range. A youth? Anybody? Anybody? Isaiah will do it. Isaiah will do it? Yes. All right. And then he doesn't seem, he doesn't seem uh, convinced himself. Colossians 1, 9 to 14. Jared got it. Thank you. And then Romans 15, 14 through 33. Romans 15, 14 through 33. You got that one, Rex? Thank you. So we've been talking about prayer. Does anybody want to remind this, the, everybody else who has been here? What? Welcome back. I just realized on your trip, long lost trip. Both of you, welcome back. So I'm, I'm sorry. I got sidetracked by people who have not been here in a month. It's good to see you both and your families. Um, anyway, 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 12. What have we talked about prayer so far? What is prayer? What is prayer? What is, how would you define prayer? Anybody? Communication with our Father. And, that's part of it. And setting ourselves rightly on his will, right? So it's not just talking to God, but it's putting ourselves like in subjection to his will. We're, we're trying to turn our hearts, bend our hearts, bend our souls towards God and God alone in prayer. Is there any other method that has been prescribed in the Bible for this to happen? Communicating with God 
How, how do we communicate with God otherwise outside of prayer? There's one other way. Read his word. Listen to his word, right? That's, that's him speaking to us through his people, through his word, particularly set down through the ages for us, right? Um, but what about the other part of that? Setting our hearts on his will. What's, what's another discipline, spiritual discipline that we have talked about that may or may not? Meditation? Yes, that is that's definitely part of it because it's part of Bible intake, right? We want to get it in our bones. And if we're not meditating on the scriptures, then it's impossible, I would contest, to even pray uh, according to the scriptures. So meditation, and that definitely leads into it. So I don't know if you've noticed, but prayer is an overlapping discipline, right? It's, it's an overlapping discipline, but it's a special type of discipline because our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, has said, pray like this, right? And where did he say that? Matthew 6, 9, and what we call the Lord's Prayer, right? The Lord has taught us to pray, and we covered each one of those little sections um, or clauses over the past, oh, well, last week. So this week, we're going to talk about how his apostle, Paul, has prayed for his churches, okay? And so you can see it put into practice, how the pattern that Jesus set out for his disciples is actually being followed by Paul. Okay, it's not going to be an academic study, so don't be afraid. We're, we're just going to look and see and dive into the riches of God's grace in First, Thess- first in Second Thessalonians 1, 3-12. So, Isaiah, when you're done, if you could read for me. Nice and long. We, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, be most about your perseverance and faith in all the perceptions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. We pay back trouble to those who trouble and give relief to those who are troubled. And to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and blazing fire with a powerful angel. Punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified and as holy people, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, this includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you and according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. As you were reading and you were listening, did you hear some of the same things from Psalm 92 that were being said in Second Thessalonians? Did you guys hear any of the same kind of things? Maybe since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. 
that's, that's not exactly from Psalm 92, but it's echoing a sentiment, the same sentiment, right? The, the righteous will flourish and the wicked will be punished, right? They, these, are, these are not something that um, is foreign to Paul. Let me ask you this. Who was Paul? Who was Paul? What, what was he? He was a Jew, a Pharisee. Highly educated under the seat of Gamaliel, right? Um, what else? He was the persecutor, persecutor of the church. His name was Saul first, right? And God gave him a new name. It's pretty biblical, like Old Testament biblical for God to do that. Um, but what, what you have to understand is that he's a Pharisee. What is a Pharisee? What was a Pharisee? He's a teacher, a leader. Yeah, a teacher, a leader of the people, and what, what particular? Self-righteousness, yes. But <laughs> yes, they were self-righteous. But they were, more they were the spiritual heads of, of the people of Israel, the, the leaders who would give them the word and tell them what the word Yes, was. okay, so they knew the Psalms quite well. And the Psalms, if you listen to the, to Paul's prayers, are being referred to over and over and over and over again and inserted, you know, because of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his work and his ways, right? And he's he's equating uh, Yahweh, the God of creation, the God, covenant Lord of Israel, and the covenant Lord of, our, of our, us also, with Jesus Christ. So he's, he's making a very demonstrative point. Number one, that Paul gives thanks to God through Jesus. For how his readers, this is, this is particularly how his readers are growing in faith, and how their, their love is also increasing. This is verses three to four. And how the Thessalonian Christians are steadfastly persevering amid trials. So let me ask you this. We just talked about how they're persevering. How their love is increasing. How their faith is growing. What is it that you give God thanks for? What is it that you give God thanks for in your prayers? I'm going to use it and say it's rhetorically, so don't, don't answer. Maybe it sounds like this. Thank you, Lord, that I have a house over my head. Thank you, Lord, that I have a car to drive to work so that I might prepare for my family. Thank you, Lord, that I have, um, I don't know, AC. Thank the Lord we have AC, right? You guys just came back from Canada. I don't even, was it even, what was the temperature up there? Uh, there was a couple of days where it almost hit 90. Almost 90. Wow, they can't. We got a heat wave going. Um, but, the, uh, but, but, but we thank God for these things, right? What, what's different about what we thank God for typically and what Paul is thanking God for? Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 3-4. Look at what he thanks God for. He thanks God for his people, the people of Thessalonica, growing in their faith, for their love for one another increasing, and them steadfastly persevering amid trials. What's different about those two sets? Think about it. One is very earthbound. That's a good way of putting it. And one is very heavenly. Do you see how the, the prayers of Paul are not about his swollen face? Not that you shouldn't like pray for that. But they are primarily about the people of God growing in the grace of God and God doing the work of growing them in grace and love for one another. 
They're focused completely on God, especially at the beginning. Completely on God. Do we look for signs of grace? Let me ask you this more directly. Do we look for signs of grace in the lives of other Christians and give thanks to God for them? Do we? I think we should. I think like Charlie wants to pray for all of his friends, so yes. all of your kids get listed by name every night at my house. Like we go through That's awesome. So when you're working through the Acts model of prayer, yep. there's no place to stick them other than thank you for all of our friends at church. Yes. And um, that's made me more conscious of praying for other people and not like when they need something. Right. Right. That's it. And that's what that's a great way of doing it. Like the Acts model, particularly, it kind of only puts that one little slot there for Thanksgiving for our friends. And <laughs> I mean, confession, that's what that's yeah. for. <laughs> but, okay, so, you give thanks to God for these things first, the eternal things. And then, you see in verses 5 to 10, that he prays with an eternal perspective. Not an earthbound perspective. Notice he's all heavenly minded right now, right? He's all about what the Lord is doing, what the Lord is going to do. He says, number one, that he's, he has eager expectation for Christ's return, right? He says that um, to grant relief to you, verse 7, who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, right? And he's looking for that return of Christ. His life is set toward that path and that path alone. But it's also set toward the vindication of not just himself, but every other believer, right? Look down to verse 10. Verse 10, it says this. When he comes, Jesus, on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony was to you as believed. So he's, he's, concerned, he's concerned about an eternal perspective and about the, he's thanking God for the vindication of the believers to come. Okay? Do our prayers, I think this is where it kind of comes to a head, do our prayers reflect an eternal view? Or are they all earth-round? It's okay to have a mix, right? There are things on, heaven, in, on, on earth that we should be praying for, like actively. Uh, I won't even go into the amount of things that I've seen lately, um, particularly on Twitter, it's a cesspool, but I... I have noticed that the, the cultural world has been pushing so hard their agenda, right? That now people even in their own camp are saying this is a little too far, right? And that's a grace of God, right? That they might restrain some more evil. So I think we should be praying for things that are being restrained here on earth too. But primarily, our prayers should have an eternal perspective. In verse 11, Paul prays that God might make Christians worthy of his calling. This does not mean that we are to be worthy enough in order to receive God's calling. No, God's already called you. He's already brought you into Christ Jesus if you're uh, saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, by his word, for God's glory. Then you have already been called. And now, he's not saying, so make me worthy of that calling. He's saying, equip me, send me, based on God's might, God's power, God's worthiness. Okay, verse 11a, it says this, 
To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. That God may make you worthy of his calling, right? He's equipping you. He's bringing you along. Not that you should pull up yourself by your bootstraps. As Christians, we have already been called by God in Christ. And to be worthy of our calling means to live in a way that is consistent with the gospel that we profess. And so we should be praying to those ends. That we might be consistent with the gospel of grace. So I want to take a few seconds and I want to ask you, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Do you think about it in your head for a few seconds? What is the gospel? When you meet somebody and they're in despair, what do you say to them? What good news can you give to them? especially if they're non-believers. And by the way, believers need to hear the gospel too. So I want a volunteer to, in short account, give, me, give us the gospel. Encourage us with the gospel of grace. Who would like to volunteer? Anybody? Go ahead, Miss Chris. <clears throat> summarized by four words. So now I'm going to teach you my four words. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response, okay? I taught, I think the second week I was here, I was in youth teaching this. God, man, Christ, response. Because the youth, youth guys had pink eye. Terrible thing to have when you're an adult. Anyway, um, God, man, Christ, response. God, created everything, and he called it very good, especially after you made Adam and Eve. He made That means he made humanity. You and me are after Adam and Eve. They are our first parents. But Adam and Eve did something that God said not to do, which is to eat of the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? They sinned, they transgressed, they went against the rule of God, and they did what he said not to do. And because of that one sin, which seems so meaningless, just eating of a tree, they broke the one command that they were given. One, do not eat of the tree. Because of that one command being broken, all of humanity, all of creation now suffers under sin's hand. Okay, So now sin, this idea of sin has been is infiltrated everything. There is nothing unaffected by sin. That means you and I, are, our doings are sinful, even when, they're, even when they're the best doings. Even when we save somebody out of a, a car, it's mostly, it's mostly for a good reason, but it has sinful desires wrapped around it, right? There's still a sinfulness about it. The people of God experience this from Moses, and the, uh, from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all the way through the Old Testament. And they were waiting on a promise that they had been given, that Adam and Eve had been given in Genesis 3. 
there will be a snake crusher, and he will rescue you. He will crush the head of the serpent, and he will bruise his heel. The promise of a Messiah was out there, someone to save them from themselves. And yet, every step of the way, they failed. Every step of the way, they proved themselves unworthy. Every step of the way, they proved themselves exactly like everybody else. right? Because God chose a small little nation to glorify himself through. And yet, they couldn't do it right. But one day, so that was God, man, we're, man, we're all sinners because of how many We all need a Savior, just like all the people in the Old Testament needed a Savior. And Christ comes. Christ comes as a baby, as an infant, which we have two in the room right now. And as an infant, he came without sin. The Holy Spirit came and impregnated Mary, a miracle, to bring about the greatest miracle ever which is the incarnation of Christ Jesus. Because without the incarnation, without God becoming man, without him putting on flesh and dwelling among us, there is no salvation for anybody. None. You can't work your way out of it. You can't balance the scales. You can't bring yourself out of the pit. No, you must have someone bring you to life because you are dead in your sins and trespasses, just like Adam and Eve. And so Jesus came lived a perfect life, a sinless life, so that you and I can be made right with God. So that by believing in his work on earth, as well as his work on the cross, he took upon himself all of your sin and mine. And if you believe that your sin, that he paid for your sin, that you don't have to pay for it anymore, guess what? Guess what? You can be free of the penalty of sin and death. You can be free of your, not just your, not suffering, not, but the meaningless suffering that you think you are going through, right? You're still going to suffer in this world. Jesus promised it. But by belief in Jesus, you know that you will be rescued. You know that you will be delivered. And you will know that when he comes, he will write the whole story, right? That's the good news. That not only when he died on the cross, he rose again on the third day under his own power. Because God lifted him up from the grave, resurrected him. He stood before his apostles. For 40 days, he was among them. Over 500 people saw him. And guess what? He ascended into heaven. And this is the best news for the Christian. He still sits on the right hand of the Father. And he advocates for you and me. Those who believe in him have an advocate before him. So that when we sin, we might still be held by his power and his grace. Because guess what? It was taken by him. It was nailed to the cross. We're going to sing it about it today and how deep the Father's love. It is no longer mine, but Christ has given me his righteousness and he has taken my sin debt. So what is your job? Response. What is your job today? Listen. If you are not a Christian in this room, your job is to respond to Jesus Christ. A non-response is a response, by the way. If you reject this good news, if you reject this good news, the only thing that awaits you is eternal punishment. Eternal punishment in the fires of hell where you are not 
privy to God's love anymore, but under God's wrath. It, no one is standing in your way. No one is going to stand before God and take that for you. But God in Christ Jesus, if you believe in him, he stands in the way of your punishment and says you are free. So what is your job? You must respond. Christians in the room, you must respond. You must respond now. Not in, the, not in this, I must walk in this way and do this thing and be this way. But in life everlasting, respond to your God who has saved you for himself. He said, you are my workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. You are the light of for all people, right? The salt of the world. I mean, we just go and we just go through, read Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. What are you supposed to be? The Sermon on Mount's there so that you might see how you are supposed to infect the world. Non-Christians, if you don't respond in faith and to his grace by giving it to you. Guess what? You will die and perish forever. But there's time right now to respond. So I hope that you hear the gospel and you are freed of those shackles of sin, those things that keep you down, those, uh, gosh, the, the wrath of God in reality, right? Don't you feel the penalty of your sin? Don't you feel the freedom when you realize that Jesus has already paid the price. That's the gospel of grace. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul is not talking about something that's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and everything else, right? It's not a prosperity gospel. It's an eternal gospel of grace. One that says that even though you suffer, it is no longer meaningless. Even though you have trials, it's producing in you the work of godliness, right? It is not for nothing, right? God pray, or Paul prays that God might make the Christians worthy of his calling. He's already called you by the gospel. He just called you again. And if you remind yourself of that gospel every day, think about how free you would be with, how liberty would be with like, sharing that good news. How good, how good is that news? That means that you don't have to determine how your life goes, right? It doesn't mean that you have to determine anything about yourself. God has already set you on a path. You must live faithfully now. The shackles of sin, the weight of those things that say, I have to create my life. This is the problem with the LGBTQ plus community. They want to be in control of everything. So much so to make themselves something they aren't and make you say that they aren't that thing, right? But because they want the control and they know they don't have it. They know they don't have it, but the gospel frees you from that need. The gospel frees you from that requirement, right? To be in control because now you have submitted yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've seen his grace you have, and you can live to his name, which is, by the way, one of the most, one of the greatest things I've ever had the privilege to do in this life. Done a lot of fun things, uh, been a lot of places, have great family, 
I got four wonderful kids, a beautiful wife who loves the Lord and is teaching our kids well. I'm just, I'm like overwhelmed with how much grace God has given me in the material things, but I am so grateful for the eternal blessing that is Christ Jesus. They don't pale in comparison. But man, it makes me get up in the morning and go, all right, how is the gospel going to infiltrate my house today? How's the word of God going to come to my kids? So what Paul is doing is he is actually bringing the gospel to bear. One of those primary things is that Christ is coming again. He left and he will return, right? The first time he left, he saved us spiritually. The second time he comes will be to liberate the world, right? To liberate his people from the world's shackles. So, and make himself known, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? And that's, that's the good thing. That's the good thing that is coming. So Paul prays that God might fulfill every resolve for or fulfill every resolve for good in every work by faith and by his power. Verse 11 b And he does this for the purpose of Jesus Christ being glorified. I want to ask you about this prayer. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 12. Look at it. Open your Bibles, look at it. And I want you to ask yourself this. Is this the kind of prayer that you pray regularly for others? Do you pray that others might be edified and encouraged by the gospel of grace that God himself has given? Do you pray that they might be made alive by this gospel? Or do you pray a laundry list? The laundry list can be helpful, right? But, but the gospel of grace is greater than your laundry list. It is more than anything you could pray for. So with that, we're going to move away from 2 Thessalonians. I want to go to Colossians 1, 9-14 with the remaining time. I'm sorry we're not getting to Romans 13, or Romans 15. Um, Caleb, or Caleb, sorry, Jared. Yeah, that was not an insult. <laughs> Go, Jerry. Right. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and multiplying in the, in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attainment of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son, kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you hear the gospel all over that? In him we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In him, we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. Right? Paul is so concerned with you understanding, and the Colossians understanding, that what, they have, what has happened to them is not something they could have ever done for themselves. And so much so that he sends his public prayers in a way that takes it, the, the onus right off of them. Right? It goes right away from them. He says, 
And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom. Right? So that you might work well, you know, walk in a manner worthy with the Lord. So let me ask you this. How much does Paul say to pray? Without ceasing. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? And before we go there, does it mean to be a monk? No. Uh, yes, Rex, we are not monks. <laughs> you know, praying without ceasing means it's just a constant forethought to go into prayer. Praying in traffic, praying and when everything is going well. Hey, Lord, thanks for doing this. Yeah, because we have a hard time with that. It's just a constant. Yeah. Prayer, prayer without ceasing looks like praying and having an attitude of dependence on God at all times. It's about as simple as it gets. Attitude of dependence on God at all times. Without having that attitude, that desire for God to be glorified at all times, guess what? You're going to find yourself going after a whole bunch of other stuff. Very easily. So would you say it's more like a heart posture than a practical? Like I need to pray every second. It's not a pray every second like the like the monks of old who would sit and memorize the psalms and they would pray certain prayers at certain times and they'd have, you know, ten times five times a day where they would get up and they would bow in the, in the way of Jerusalem and they would pray. We do not we're not that's not what I'm talking about with prayer without ceasing. What I'm talking about is an attitude, a heart posture, a a a directive, uh, an intentional directing our hearts toward God at all times. That's difficult, right? That's difficult. How much in our lives just distract us from that? What's in front of you right now that can distract you from that? Some of you guys are holding them. They distract you from that. I'm not calling you out, just, just saying. But they have a way of distracting us from our attitude, our heart posture toward God, which is complete dependence on him. What were you saying, Rick? Um, that there's actually that side that you just mentioned, complete dependence. That's, that's our yes. uh, nature and need. But it, really, prayer also involves a recognition hmm. that God will respond oh, yeah. to, that, to that dependence. Oh, yeah. It's an assumption that this is a God that we can approach and he will yeah. act, and that, that's just as important. On that note, one of the most crazy people that I know, does anybody know who Russell Brand is? Yeah. Yes. He himself, who does not know the Lord, said this. He goes, we are all worshiping beings. And I went, amen, you're not so far from the kingdom. He said, you know what, we worship even our toothpaste and I went, you lost me. Who, who uses the same toothpaste all the time? Like, not that you buy it, but that, like, it's always the same kind every time. Okay, a couple, couple of people. Couple of people. But, but that, what he's saying, he's equating our lives and what we give ourselves to and what we do add to worship. And I'm like, amen. <laughs> amen. Something so simple made him recognize how how much we need and we have to worship. Right? And I think if, if we can get this into our hearts and minds, that we are worshiping beings, that our wills and our dependence will come naturally out of the fact that we are worshiping a God who actually responds, who actually hears us. 
who does not ignore the prayers of his people, but listens with an open ear and an open heart. God, or Paul prays, number two, that all believers might be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, again, it's all about the eternal for Paul. He wants them to get their eyes off of their circumstances and put them on Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one that matters. Yes, it matters that you prepare a good meal for your family, that you glorify God in that way, that you uh, work really hard in your job, whatever it looks like. It matters, but it does not matter if your soul is far from him. If you are completely lost, right? Because you are dead and you're sending press trespasses. But those who have been raised to walk in the newness of life in Christ, we have a different heart posture. We have an alive heart, right? We've been, had our heart so taken out and been given a heart of flesh. One that's beating, one that is not anchored to the bottom of the sea. So Paul prays that believers might be filled with the knowledge of God's will, right? In Colossians 1, 9 to 14. But he also prays that they might walk in a worthy, a manner worthy of that calling, a manner pleasing to God. I heard it just said the other day by Paul Washer. I don't know if you know who Paul Washer is. Um, he said, we don't understand holiness until we ask this, or until we naturally ask this question. Is this going to please my father? Not, should I not do this? Oh, I'm not, I can't do this. I won't do this. But will this please my father? That question is the exact opposite of legalism. Right? Legalism says, do these things and live. Right? Do these things and look like these things and be these things and live. The gospel says, it's already been done. Look to your father and please him and him alone. So Paul is praying that you might please God alone and not try to fight through your circumstances to, to win at any sort of thing or to keep your eyes so low that you made it you know, a couple of years down the road and you look up and you go, oh, there is a Lord. There is a God. And I forgot about him. How many of us go through days without even praying? Rhetorical. Don't mercy your hand. God calls us to pray continuously. So I want to I want to end this way. I want to encourage you to pray. Matthew 7 says this. God answers prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives. He will he who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be opened. That's Matthew 7:7:8. 7, 7, 1 John 5, 14 through 15 says, This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Right? The confidence in approaching God is that he hears us through Jesus Christ. We also, not only did God answer his prayer, but we should be persistent in prayer. Luke 18, 1 to 7. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But what it's talking about is the idea that uh, hearts change over time. We change over time. But our persistence, we must be persistent. God is calling us to persistence in prayer. So God answers prayer is our primary encouragement. But number two, he is absolutely sovereign over every single thing on this earth. 
There is nothing on this creation that is not led according to the word of God. Daniel 9, 2-3 says this, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, this, he knows the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Prayer does not conflict with God's sovereignty. It's actually an acknowledge of it. Right? It's an acknowledgement of his sovereignty, his absolute good pleasure. From the beginning to the end of Scripture, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are laid out side by side, without apology and without any consternation by the people of God. They recognize that he's sovereign, and they have no problems with that. So we pray because God is sovereign, because he answers us also, and that he alone has the power to do anything that he wants to do. None of us can snap our fingers and go, I would love a Hot Pocket. Why you would do that, I'm not sure. But none of us have that ability, but God can just think it, speak it into existence. There is none like him. So, some practical attempts. We're going to do these. I know, I realize that. So everybody's going to be coming through this door. Yep. Um, so make a plan. Plan to pray. Find ways to maintain concentration. That means don't, don't have something going on out here, but pray without any extra noise in your life. And then develop a system for prayer. That way you can pray without ceasing. I'm done. We're going to pray. We're going to be done. Okay? Pray with me. Father, you have been good to us to give us your word, to teach us to pray. Lord, through your apostles, through your son, through through the Bible, through the church over time. We are so grateful and thankful that nothing under this sun is new and that you are directing all things for your good, for your through your power, for our good and your glory. But you are good and gracious to us. In Jesus' name, amen.